Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to take another look into the world of restaurants and hotels. In the first episode of this two-part series, we focused on how restaurants and hotels have changed over the last few decades, both in the United States and around the world. We looked at current trends in those industries, what COVID-19's impact has been on the hospitality industry, and who's likely to survive or not survive there. In part two of this series, we're going to take a look at the future of restaurants and hotels, at least over the next several years. We're also going to take a look at what opportunities might exist for you in the hospitality industry, whether you are a student choosing a career major, a current career or job seeker, an entrepreneur, or an investor. To help us explore the hospitality industry's future and opportunities offered by restaurants and hotels, we're going to rejoin Dr. Stephanie Robson, our hospitality expert, who was with us on part one of this series. A native of Vancouver, Canada, Stephanie Robson holds three degrees from Cornell University and is recognized as an expert in the psychology of hospitality design. Dr. Robson was a member of the faculty at the distinguished Cornell University School of Hotel Administration for over 25 years, where she taught development and planning for hotels and restaurants. Her research and consulting practice focuses on how the design of hospitality environments influences patron behavior, attitudes, and perceptions. Stephanie has presented her work in a wide range of academic and hospitality industry forums worldwide. She is also a co-author of the book, Hotel Design, Planning, and Development. Now we're going to get to what I might call the hub of looking forward. Part of the reason why it's called looking forward is looking into the future. And using your knowledge, your expertise in the restaurant industry and in the hotel industry, if you had to predict what sort of changes or trends we will see in the hospitality industry, whether we're talking about design, dining options, operations, anything else that you can think of, Stephanie, over the next few years, factoring in the different impacts that you alluded to that COVID has had, what would you predict? Well, let's start with hotels. Because they are primarily investments for their owners, as well as experiences for the guests, looking for ways to do more with less. So the, the era of the big ballroom in a hotel was already fading. This is the final frontier. We're no longer going to see those built in hotels because we won't get large groups of people coming to hotels to attend presentations. We can do that on Zoom. But what we want people to do when they come to hotels is to interact with each other because we've seen, if anything, COVID has taught us is interaction with other humans is really important to us. It's part of our well-being. It's how we grow. It's how we learn. It's how we get stimulated and how we get entertained. So 
hotels are thinking, how can we create environments where you can bring people together, they can interact, but also do it safely um, because people will be sensitive to being packed into spaces. So instead of big meeting rooms, I think you're going to start to see hotels have public spaces that are very flexible and people can sort of go off in their little corner, but they mix and mingle a little bit more. I know that sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but I think we've already, again, this trend was coming and COVID has just uh, sort of accelerated it. I think you'll see hotel rooms get smaller still um, with the idea being that if you're going to no longer have the revenue from these big group events, we have to find more ways to generate revenue and more rooms equals more revenue. So you might see hotel rooms get a little bit smaller and that's okay. Um, you know, in our culture, we think of space as status. You know, a big room means you've made it, right? Got a big suite and there still will be a market for that. But there are some really creative things that some hotel companies are doing to create hotel rooms that are small and that are modular, that are built in a factory and shipped to the site. Um, one brand I'll, I'll mention is a European brand called Citizen M. And Citizen M, all of their hotel rooms are made in a factory. I believe the factory is in Poland and they are shipped all around the world. They're the size of a shipping container on purpose and they are shipped all over the world. And the rooms themselves are incredibly interesting design, but they're small. And where they put their money and their energy is into a really interesting public space on the ground floor, which has lots of little spaces you can occupy. There's a bar, there's a cafe, there's places where you can plug in and work, or you can play a board game, or you can take a book off the shelf in the lobby and read it while you have your complimentary snacks. That is a model, I think, that has a lot of potential. On the restaurant side of things, I think the trends are outdoor dining is going to stay. People like it even in places where the weather isn't great. So you mentioned earlier, Jeff, that you're from Philadelphia and you live in the Philadelphia suburbs. You know, once October, November rolls around in Philadelphia, you may not be sitting outside, but between the building of enclosures that meet the standard for health, but also have heaters in them, uh, people like to be outside. So I think we're gonna see more outdoor dining, uh, more creative use of space that maybe wasn't utilized before, going back to hotels just for a moment, the idea of using roof space for generating revenue. Again, this is not a new idea. Back in the 20s and 30s, rooftop dining and rooftop bars were a thing, and then they stopped being a thing. Now they're a thing again, but they make sense because that space that you're not paying rent on, but you can use it to generate revenue. So I think we're going to see restaurants look at, you know, if they're in a single story building, how can I use that space up there? Maybe certainly looking at how to be more nimble and flexible and operate with fewer employees um, because employees are expensive. They're not, unfortunately, they're not expensive enough. I think one thing else that COVID has taught us is that the people who serve others, I think very much deserve more recognition than they get. And restaurants are starting to realize that they need to pay more in order for uh, them to get staff. And for that reason, restaurants are going to become more expensive. So if you can operate a restaurant that has fewer staff, you have a better chance. And so there are lots of different approaches. You might have heard about restaurants that are using 
machines to make the food, you know, sort of robotics. There's a place in San Francisco that robotically makes hamburgers and you can watch your hamburger being made. <laughs> and there's a place in Brooklyn where they make dumplings and with a machine. And it's, again, this is not a new idea, but I think it, I don't think it has the legs. I think people go to restaurants not to see a machine make their food or not to open a little door and get a, an order of dumplings out. I think they want that personal interaction. And so this trend towards automation and technology, I think you're gonna see it in the back end behind the scenes, but it, I don't think it's something that has a lot of potential in the front of the house. Because as we've seen from COVID, we go to restaurants for social reasons, for entertainment reasons. And it's not about just getting food. And for that reason, I think we have to harness technology in the right way. Excellent. Two follow-up questions. First one is, let's talk about the hotels. You mentioned, as an example, the modules that are being built in Europe, maybe in Poland, and they're being shipped. Who's buying these modules? You're talking about, I assume, brand new structures that are being built that will use these as opposed to knocking down or redesigning an existing hotel. So who is buying these? Are they being bought around the world, the United States, hotel chains? Do you know who's buying them? Absolutely. Hotel chains are very interested in modular design for hotels. One brand, which is called AC, it's one of the Marriott brands. They actually have gone with the statement saying they plan to build all their hotels modular going forward. Um, Citizen M started as a modular brand. Um, even brands like La Quinta, which is sort of a roadside, uh, less expensive brand, they've been building their rooms in a factory. It's interesting. Their rooms are, there's two rooms and a chunk of corridor, all in one piece. And they put it on the back of a tractor trailer and it gets driven to the site and craned into place. You can see videos of this on YouTube. It's fascinating to watch. So I think definitely new construction. You can't retrofit this way. Uh, an existing building is not going to happen. But this is a much more efficient way to build. It's faster. Quality control is better. So if you're developing a hotel, modular is going to be extremely attractive. The only place where I don't think we're going to see it is at the high end, right? High end hotels or resort hotels where you want there to be that variety of the rooms and experience. Um, that's partially what the guest is going for. I don't think you're going to see the modular really take off there. But it, I think in, in 25 years, building a hotel from scratch, and I'm using air quotes here, is going to be relatively rare. And modular is going to be the way to go. Wow. I have to ask you something based on what you just said. And then I have one more about the restaurants. What about the existing hotels. What are they going to be able to do? They can't do modular. They can't make their rooms smaller, I don't think. What are they doing or what are they going to have to do? What do you predict is going to happen to them? They're already built. Well, you have to capitalize on what you've got. So let's say you're an existing hotel and maybe you were built in the 1980s. And so your typical room size in the U.S. would be about 350 square feet. In outside the U.S., about 30 square meters. So let's say that's your room size. Well, now you have a competitive advantage. You've got more room, right, to sell. So when you're marketing, you can say, look, we give you more space. Stretch out. 
or you know we're not part of a big brand we can give you a more personalized experience that isn't to say the brands can't they actually can because they have all the data on you when you go yeah. book through your loyalty plan they know all about you but i think there's really an opportunity for unique properties to capitalize on that uniqueness they're just a different experience and depending on what your travel meaning or what what is you're trying to do with your trip if you're a business traveler or you're traveling and you just need a place to stay one or two nights and the hotel, as long as it has the amenities you want, that's fine. You may stick with a branded property, but if it's a destination that you're going on vacation with your family or it's a special event, you might look for the unique. So I don't think it's that hotels that don't conform to this modular approach are, are at a disadvantage. I think it's all about positioning. But I will tell you that the older properties, they are going to take quite a bit of maintenance to stay up to date. One of the biggest challenges is with technology. Uh, older properties, if they can't keep up with the, the need for high-speed Wi-Fi and high demand on their networks, it's going to be very difficult for them. And we've seen this with some of the grand old properties, a place like the Waldorf Astoria in New York, part of the renovation that they're doing, part of the hotels being converted to residential, but they're trying to upgrade their technology because old buildings, extremely difficult to get good Wi-Fi in. So I think you're going to see this pivoting towards being more unique with the older properties and the let's build very efficiently and effectively in the newer ones. Okay, that's great. Thank you for clarifying that. The restaurant question I want to ask you is, you have in your illustrious career spent a lot of time talking about seating in a restaurant. And of course, with COVID, we're seeing restaurants seating people far away from one another, fewer tables, Where's the seating thing going? You talked about outdoor dining and such and the cooking of foods. Where's the seating going? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this, Jeff, because I could talk about seating all day long. <laughs> <laughs> what I will tell you is people like to be up against things when they sit. This is kind of a weird thing about human nature. We like to be up against things. And we could talk about why that might be the case. But <laughs> With you have, when you have tables that are all spread out, people feel very vulnerable if they're not up against something. If you have a table in the middle of the dining room, and maybe you have this from your own experience, you go to a restaurant and they seat you at a table in the middle of the dining room, and you think, why can't I have that corner table? <laughs> why can't I have that table in the window, right? That's the better table. Well, what's happening there is you, you've got some sort of personal space definition by having this wall around you. Fascinating. The kind of seating that people love and is very COVID and post-COVID friendly is booth seating. Everybody likes a booth, right? Think about the places where you go. The, the corner booth is kind of like the, the best seat in the house. Well, I think what we're seeing is restaurants are recognizing they can't space tables too far apart because they're not going to get enough tables in the restaurant to generate enough revenue to pay the rent and to pay their staff and all their other costs. Booths have the wonderful advantage of not only do people like them, but they're very good use of space. You can get a lot of seating in the same amount of space using booths. So by the way, again, not a new idea. Brands have been doing this a long time. I don't know if you've ever been to an Outback Steakhouse, but yes, the Outback yes. Steakhouse floor plan is all booths. Stephanie, just to stop you for a second, I'm thinking diners. I grew up yeah. with diners. Yeah. 
And the reason that diners use booths is because they could get the most seats in the space as humanly possible, right? You can get tables closer together if you're back to back and you've got this structure in between. So I think we're gonna see more restaurants go back to booths. The reason that they weren't building booths is they're more expensive, right? It's cheaper to just put tables and chairs in. But I will tell you that guests love booths and I've done research that shows that people spend more money when they sit in a booth. And so if I'm a restaurant operator, I might say, well, okay, I wanna maximize my square footage or my square meters. I want to make people happy. I want to also generate the highest revenue possible. So gee, booths are pretty good. The only uh, drawback with a booth is it's not very flexible, right? You can't make them bigger and smaller depending on the size of the group. So there are some challenges there, but I think putting more booths in restaurants, there was a fad for a while there of communal tables right? Restaurants were putting in these big communal tables. Part of that was a response to the cost of real estate. Let's get as many seats as humanly possible. And if we put everybody at one table, that's really efficient use of space. Say goodbye to those for a while. I don't think guests are really comfortable in that setting. They weren't before COVID and they certainly aren't after COVID. And the idea of having a, a dynamic environment that you can change over the course of the day. So restaurants that operate one way at lunch and another way at dinner because they can capture a different kind of guests. There's a restaurant or was one in New York City called Tamisi Specialties. And Tamisi by day was a sandwich bar. You went up to a counter, you ordered your sandwich, you paid for it, you sat down, you ate, you left. And so they got a lot of churn at midday. At dinner, it became a full service restaurant. You sat down, the waiter came to your table, they gave you a menu and it was a more typical full service experience. Interesting. So this is, I think, something we're going to see restaurants do because they recognize they can't be all things to all people all day long. Their model has to pivot depending on what guests want at different times of the day, which means the design has to stand up to that kind of change. So a lack of flexible seating, maybe, but a more flexible operation. That's what I think. That's the yeah. On the one hand, I was thinking, geez, my diner that I love to go to, I went as a kid and we don't have a good one really close to me, but there's one not that far away. It sounds like they're positioned for this, but I got a little concerned when you talked about the flexibility, because if you got a booth, you can't turn it around and get rid of it for the nighttime. So that is a little bit of a challenge, isn't it? Well, and this is where being creative as an operator. So you might've heard of a restaurant in New York City called M. Wells. Uh, the original M. Wells was in an old diner, and M. Wells was a high-end restaurant. I mean, very interesting cuisine, high check average, alcohol sales, but it was a diner environment. And this kind of high-low hybridization is another trend we're seeing, which is people want to be casual. They don't necessarily want to dress up to go out for dinner. They don't want to make it a formal occasion, but they also want to have a great experience, and they may want to have great wine, or they might want to have that tomahawk chop on their plate, but they don't want to have to put a tie on to do it. I, I think we're not going to see ties much anymore. <laughs> COVID <laughs> has shown us also that, that you can dress any way you want, right? You go out to eat, it's fine. Um, I don't know right now what you're wearing, but I'm, I'm wearing comfortable athleisure, and I don't think I'll ever wear hard pants again. Um, yes. And I think restaurants are recognizing that. So a casual environment that they can still do a high-end experience is another trend that's, I think, be very important. Well, I'm very happy to say goodbye to ties and no, I'm not wearing one. Although nobody can see that, but I'm telling you, I'm not wearing one. <laughs> Last but very important thing, 
I want to have you talk about is the other reason looking forward has that name is it's upbeat. It's optimistic. I'm looking forward. We have had quite a few people lose their jobs, as you alluded to, particularly in the hospitality industry because of COVID. But we also have other people, Stephanie, who are looking to change jobs or change their careers, or maybe like me, get into a second career. We have those students that you taught for many years trying to figure out what they should do, and you help them become involved in the hospitality industry when you were teaching at Cornell. We have investors, of course, and we have all kinds of opportunity seekers and entrepreneurs. Now, that's a whole bunch of different kinds of people. If you could just speak to a few of what you might see as being the opportunities in the future, in the near future, in the hospitality industry, that would be just great. Oh, there are so, so many. I think a lot of people think of hospitality as being, oh, you know, it's a job where I'm serving people. And yes, you are, but serving people means so much more than you think it does. I think the opportunities for someone who is interested in entrepreneurship are legion. So on the operating side, I mean, it may be pessimistic to say, but there are a lot of closed restaurants out there. You've got a built out restaurant that's sitting there waiting for someone to take it and revive it or change it into something else using the bones of what's there now. And there have never been better times to acquire existing restaurant space. Landlords are eager to have tenants. Equipment is sitting there waiting to be used. It's a great time to start a restaurant if you have access to capital. Um, in fact, a number of my former students in the last I'm going to say last 16 months have created and opened restaurants more than wow. probably in the previous 10 years because it's affordable to do. It's sad to think that it's on the back of people who started restaurants and failed, but there's opportunities everywhere. That said, it's a very difficult business being a restaurateur. It's hard work. The margins are thin. It has to be something that comes from your soul. So if, if your soul is up for it and you've got the head for business to make it work, because being a good cook or being an enthusiast for making people happy is great, but you got to be a good business person as well. If that's not quite your thing, there are other opportunities in what I'll call the back end, the, the non-service side of the restaurant industry. We've seen this in the rise of what I'll call third-party mediation. So that's everything from DoorDash and Uber Eats. This is a third party being that intermediary between you and the restaurant, right? You're ordering through those channels. We've seen it with reservations, with Open Table and Resi, the same thing. Opportunities to be that sort of intermediary between the person selling the food and the person consuming it. There are other opportunities in that space, whether it's with supply chain, you know, being that intermediary, not the traditional vendor of, you know, food or equipment or supplies to restaurants, but maybe there are some sort of marketplace opportunities. You might think of it as sort of Craigslist for restaurants. There really isn't a good uh, meeting place or marketplace for restaurants who are trying to maximize maybe assets they have that they're underutilizing. Um, I know one business where this is so smart, what they did is they said, well, hang on, we've got all these restaurants and hotels and other places that have commercial kitchens that aren't using them 24 seven. Can we leverage the time when those kitchens are not in use for someone who wants to use them? So 
you know, I have a business, I want to make jam and sell it in grocery stores. I can make jam at three in the morning. That's no big deal. Can I find a kitchen where I can make my jam? Mm. And so there's somebody who's created a business where it's this, you know, matching, buying and selling of, hey, I've got four hours of unutilized kitchen space. Who needs it? Wow. So there's opportunities for that kind of intermediation. I think there's also opportunities for helping restaurants be more efficient and effective. Um, that's kind of where, where I work, is helping organizations see opportunity that they didn't know was there. And whether that's in space or whether that's in their approach to staffing or whether that's in their approach to their menu mix, whatever that might be, there's tons of opportunity because there's so many entrepreneurs that got into the restaurant business because they love food, but maybe they're not necessarily trained in business or analytics or, or architecture, or, you know, they're just trying to run their business. And so there's tons of opportunity to help people like that be more effective. I want to come back to that with hotels, but before we get to hotels, I want to ask you, what about the chefs, the cooks, students thinking about going to a school for cooking, culinary schools. A lot of people lost their jobs doing yeah. that. Are those jobs coming back? Are those jobs going to be filled by the same people? Or are there more opportunities also for people who've never done that before? Well, you've opened an interesting and challenging can of worms there, Jeff, because on the one hand, we're going to see demand. We still see demand now. Restaurants cannot fill positions for chefs and cooks and servers. They're having a tough time getting staff. So the jobs are there. I think, as I've mentioned earlier, we're just going to have to change the way we look at those jobs and how we compensate those jobs to make them attractive to people. Totally, totally in support of that. I think for people who are passionate about food, you know, certainly learning about any way you can, the best way to learn actually is to do. <laughs> and so I encourage people who want to get into this field, go work in a restaurant, just go. At the start of the show, I talked about my background a little bit, and then I started working in a kitchen at 17. I didn't know anything, nothing. And it's, that's how people have learned for a long, long time. I would say that is a good place to start and see if you really like it. And if you really like it, then go on and you can find lots of ways of getting education in that area or just building your career organically. Um, restaurants are one of those places where you don't have to have a bachelor's degree. You don't have to have a higher degree to, to be successful. <laughs> People have told me that maybe they're less or more successful if they don't have those degrees. I don't know. Yeah. But, but all that to say is the best way to sort of jump in is to do exactly that. There will always be opportunities for people to serve, to cook, to innovate in the food space, always. It's just a question of what is the most appropriate for a given market and what is the most, uh, most appropriate for a given condition. One of the places where we've seen a tremendous innovation is in providing food during emergencies. Um, you may have heard of a chef named Jose Andres, mm. who well-known chef. And he used his experience and his logistics of his restaurant group to start feeding people during emergencies. And now his charity, World Central Kitchen, is worldwide probably, I would say, the best way of getting people fed in case of emergency. Wow. And you know, looking for ways to leverage the expertise in the community of chefs and cooks and servers. So there's lots of opportunity. You just have to be creative in how you do it and recognize that this is something that is 
a, a inborn passion. I will tell you, nobody goes into the food business to make money. If you think you're going into the food business to become wealthy, uh, this, it's hard, but you do it because you love it. And you also have potential to really make a difference to a lot of people. And to me, that's worth more than money. Going back to what I was saying about a can of worms related to culinary schools. So teaching someone to cook is expensive, right? You need a facility. It's not a normal restaurant kitchen. It's a teaching kitchen. Those are expensive to build. You need all the food items. You need the labor, the, the teaching labor, the, the, the portering, all of that stuff costs money. So culinary schools, by definition, have to be relatively expensive. But on the other side, when you graduate and you go work in the food industry, traditionally, people who work in the kitchen don't get paid that much. So there's this disconnect between the tuition costs in a culinary school and what your salaries are going to be. And so people, they go to culinary school, they have to take out loans. Those loans are hard to pay off because your salary doesn't cover it. You can see where the challenge lies. What we're learning as an industry is that that's not sustainable. And so finding ways to compensate people who work in the back of house better is something we're going to have to do, but it's hard because we're already a thin margin business. That means prices have to go up. What I tell people who are interested in going into this field is go work in it first, get some experience, find out what part of it you really like and that you're good at. Don't go straight into culinary school after high school. Do some work in the field and just see where your interests are. Then you can decide which channel is best for you. Is it in the kitchen? Is it as a manager? Is it as uh, an entrepreneur of some sort that supports the restaurant industry? Find your niche because there are lots of niches to be had. But anyone who wants to go into restaurants who hasn't actually worked in one first, I think is setting themselves up for a little bit of a disappointment. Yes. And I can tell you, back in the day, after I finished college, I went to Salem, Oregon, and I got jobs just to sustain myself. I wasn't going to be there very long in the restaurant industry. And from talking with the people there who were working in the industry, and from my own experience, I could see and hear what a tough business it is to work in. Yeah. You spoke a lot about opportunities. It was wonderful in the restaurant industry. You see any opportunities for these disparate groups in hotels? Well, there are. Because again, hotels have moved away from being strictly a place to stay. Now they are having much more of a, a connection to the community. One of the things that I've noticed is opportunities in hotels is finding ways to generate revenue with the resource that they have in a non-traditional way. So let me give you an example. I have a friend who is interested in the music industry. He is a promoter of concerts, but what he's recognized is Hotel lobbies can often be a really nice intimate setting for acoustic concerts. So he's partnering with local hotels to bring musicians into their lobbies during evenings on quiet days of the week when they don't have a lot of check-ins and check-outs. And this is great because not only does it bring locals into the hotel lobby and they'll buy a drink and they'll sit and listen to someone playing guitar or playing the piano, and it makes the lobby lively, which makes the hotel more appealing, but it also sets the hotel apart from the sort of normal branded corporate experience. Yes. So there's an entrepreneur saying, here's a place I can take what I do best and connect to the hotel industry. If you are interested in being a hotelier, well, certainly there are 
people who do Airbnbs or other kinds of vacation rentals in their own home, essentially you're a hotelier. That's a difficult business, I will tell you right now. It's not as easy as it may sound. But again, finding ways to get exposure to the industry before taking that plunge, I think is always good. For people interested in the real estate investment side of hotels, um, there are a lot of assets right now that are probably on the market or will be on the market soon. The hotel cycle is pretty predictable in the pattern. It's just a question of how long it takes for that pattern to repeat itself. We've seen some hotels really suffer in COVID, but that means there might be opportunities for purchase and investment and looking for those gems. I mentioned earlier on, you know, finding older properties that with some creative redevelopment, you can start making them really viable businesses. Maybe they're not run as a standard hotel anymore. It turns into something different. I think there's good potential there. Uh, I know some people are looking at hotels and thinking, well, maybe I can convert them to residential. Uh, that's hard for a lot of reasons. Everything from the building HVAC systems to the way the corridor, there's all kinds of reasons why it's hard. But there is opportunity in the real estate space as well. I think it's an exciting time. We still have a lot of, of learning to do and lessons from COVID all, I think are hard earned, but there's tons of potential for anyone who's interested in creating service experiences for others. Well, thanks. That's great. And it fits in perfectly with looking forward. Stephanie, this has been terrific. You've shared so many great pearls of wisdom and provided us with a lot of ideas and possibilities. How can our listeners find out more about you, your consulting, your speaking? I know you've written a book. I know you do other writing. Anything else you'd like to share with them? How can they find out about that? Well, there's lots of ways you can track me down. Although I'm not a big social media user. I'm, I'm one of those old Luddites. <laughs> I don't even have a data plan on my cell phone. That's how Luddite I am. Okay. I know. I think I'm the last person. But I do have uh, a LinkedIn page. So you can find me at Stephanie Robson. And uh, I, there's no E on the end of Stephanie. Um, that's just actually a teenage affectation that turned into a legal name change. Um, and Steph and you, Stephanie is spelled P-H, not F, right? Correct. S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-R-O-B-S-O-N. That's right. So Stephanie Robson, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as well. Um, you can find me at, at SKR4Cornell um, because I'm for Cornell, but that's also my Cornell email address. And you can still reach me there, which is skr 4 at cornell.edu. The kind of work I'm doing is helping, whether it's restaurants or hotels, look for ways to optimize. So my specialty is, is physical. So I look at public spaces like restaurants and bars and lobbies. And, but I can also talk about operational efficiencies specifically and how do you make your kitchen work as best as possible. I have a background in commercial kitchen design. Before uh, I went into the front of house, I focused on the back of house. So I, I speak fluent stainless steel. Uh, so if, if people have uh, questions about the, the back of house, I'm happy to do that as well. But my area of research and what I focus on today is the psychology of restaurants. So how do you create an environment that makes people want to come, stay, spend? And uh, if there's something I can do to help you work out one of those or all three of those, I'm happy to do it. Well, I have to say that your expertise was probably very important, no doubt was important before COVID. But now that we're in COVID and hopefully we will get through this, your expertise 
for those who are in the hotel industry and the restaurant industry couldn't be more important and more needed. Thank you so much for being our guest on Looking Forward, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, that completes the second episode with Dr. Stephanie Robson. Hey, if you like those episodes, and even better, if you liked Looking Forward, we'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a good review on whatever podcast site you've listened to these episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F dot com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward. <laughs>